May we turn in our Bibles, please, to the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 11, verse 28. And this, by the way, is what we were supposed to be reading today, if you're reading your Bibles and keeping up with it. This is in the section, but Jesus said, Yea, rather, blessed are they that hear the word of God and keep it. Blessed are they that hear the word of God and keep it. There was another very beautiful text that we ran on tonight. Uh, chapter 10, verse 2. Therefore he said unto them, The harvest truly is great, but the labors are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest, that he would send forth laborers into his harvest. That's the text that really struck me when we read it, Ms. McIntyre and I did. We need to pray that the Lord will send us the, the labors for the harvest. I'm speaking tonight on what the new confession does to Jesus Christ. Next Sunday night, I'm going to speak on what the new confession does to the cross of Christ. And I would say of all the chapters I've written in this book, the one next Sunday night in which I'm going to deal with the cross draws these lines so sharply and so incisive. And I hope that everyone who's here tonight will come back and hear the message next Sunday night on the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I have eight messages planned for this series on the new confession. And... The new confession, or the confession of 1967, has been called ecumenical theology by Dr. Eugene Carson Blake. We have in it the pattern which is now going to be followed as they build this great world church, the ecumenical church. So whether you look back 300 years, or whether you look forward to the great deepening apostles, what has happened right now, 1967, is one of the greatest events of church history in our country. A great denomination, the Presbyterians, have decided to take the old Westminster Confession and lay it aside. No longer is it to be bound to the church by these vows and put it over here in a book of confessions where it has historical value, historical significance. You can read it and get some inspiration out of it, of course, but it is no longer the binding creed of the church. That expressed the views that men had some 300 years ago. But now we're in 1967 and we need something that will express our views today. And so we now have that expression in this confession of 1967. Now, if you'll take the little book that you have in your hands, I want you to turn first to the back of it, right in the very back of it, and if you'll turn to page 180 or 79, 179, 180, we have published the entire text of the New Confession. The whole thing is right here. And instead of starting out with the Word of God, as the uh, Westminster Confession does, 
You don't get any reference on the Bible until you get over to section C, number 2, on page 185. You have a brief section here on the Bible. You'll turn to page 186. 186. You have the statement here beginning with verse, or the verse, or line 248 it is, line 248. The scriptures given under the guidance of the Holy Spirit are nevertheless the words of men, conditioned by the language, thought forms, and literary fashions of the places and times at which they were written. Of course, this rejects the infallibility of the Bible outright. They reflect views of life, history, and the cosmos which were current then. The church, therefore, has, no ob has an obligation to approach the scriptures with literary and historical understanding. That's your higher critical appraisal of the Bible, and of course the poor people a hundred years ago that didn't have the benefit of this literary and historical understanding, it's just too bad they didn't understand the Bible a hundred years ago. But here it is, the historical, higher critical assault, and then of course the Bible, under the guidance of the Spirit, are nevertheless the words of men. Now, if you'll turn back a little further to the rear of the book, you'll find that on page 212, we have an index of the quotations from the Confession. Uh, this is exceedingly valuable. You can work it both ways. When you read the book, you find a statement, you can turn back into the Confession and see the context and see exactly what it says. Or if you read, the, you read the Confession, you can turn in here and then find the place in the text of the book where I will be discussing it. And Miss Ethel Rink, who worked this out, it wasn't easy to do. It's quite a Chinese puzzle to put all this together. Uh, but she's done it, and it will be a great service to the people of God everywhere, the interchange in, in this section. And then we have the index to all the quotations from the Bible which are contained in this book. And then, of course, a very thorough and exhaustive general index, which will be most helpful. Now, will you turn, please, over to the table of content? Uh, that's in the front of the book, right in the very front of the book, after the dedication. And you'll, you'll notice I've dedicated this book to my oldest grandson. But the contents outline some 19 chapters. And... Last Sunday night, I dealt with these ordination vows. And I told you that they had laid aside the old vows, the first two, the most important. Do you believe the scriptures of the Old and the New Testament to be the word of God? The only infallible rule of faith and practice. That is gone. It's completely gone. It's no longer a part of the new subscription requirements. Do you sincerely receive and adopt the confession of faith containing the system of doctrine set forth in the Word of God? That's gone. It's completely gone. When you throw away the Bible as the infallible Word of God and then throw away the great system of revealed truth which the Bible has in it, you really don't have much left, beloved. You don't have too much left. And that's what these ordination vows have done. And then in the section on the Holy Scripture, we go into great detail, and I hope you'll study that and restate it. Tonight we'll discuss the Lord Jesus. Next Sunday night we'll get into the cross. 
And then I want to do, devote an entire message on what's happening to the church. The church takes the place of the Bible. The church moves in to be the authoritative guide and to be the standard which the church or the people of the church will look to rather than the infallible Bible. And then we move in, of course, to the broadened effect. We're getting guidance from all the pagan religions today. That's something new. That's chapter 6. And then reconciliation is the theme of this new confession. And it's not reconciliation by the blood. Reconciliation. I want you to hear that message because this is the the technique of the social revolution. This is the strategy that you, it's the dialectic, it's all it is, just the dialectic, compromise here and compromise there, and you bring them together in the synthesis. And I, I want you to hear that message by all means. And then we come into the great practical hortatory section of the confession where it's civil rights, it's all in here, peaceful coexistence, getting together with the communist world, the poverty program, and here you have the foundation and platform for the great society's poverty pro anti-poverty program. Sex, the whole new morality, it's all in here. And I want our church, and I want you young people, I want everybody to hear me the night that I develop these aspects of this new confession. And as we contrast the new with what the Bible has and what has been the old standards of the church. And then the immediate context, I have a chapter on that for you because it's very important they say that we must confess Christ in the present. And this present confession is the experience and the findings of the church right now. And so we do take the immediate context and we see how the immediate context shapes the message rather than the message shaping our present world. Beloved, we got this thing all twisted around. You never saw such a topsy-turvy uh, situation as has now been created. The world and the circumstances are going to mold the church, and the church is going to find out of it uh, its present testimony. But the idea of anything being eternally true coming down from centuries to centuries to generation to generation, that, that's all gone. We're, we're in an evolutionary process. And 1967, of course, means that we have evoluted to the present position where we are at the present time. And then, of course, beginning with the 13th chapter, we get into the great history, uh, going back from the present clear on back, and we tell the whole story of the struggle of the Presbyterian controversy since 1893. And that involves our church and our place in it and all that we've had to do with it. And that history is told here for the first time. It's never been put in any book at all. I did say in the introduction here that my treatment of it was rather brief, but it's very, very uh, thorough in its comprehensive line of connection. Now, somebody else can write a book maybe after I'm gone, or somebody else will write the history and make some great thick volumes of history of this period. But in view of what has happened in the new confession and the revolution that's taken place, it was essential that we put down this story in an accurate historical manner with many, many quotations from the documents, the resolutions, the books, and all of that is in this. And I want to say to you young people in this church and you young people in this choir, if you'll read this book that your pastor has written, if you'll study this record which we put down here, 
you'll have in your hearts and minds the years that we've lived in this place. And I want you all to get it and everybody to have it. And we'll be getting into it at least as we move along in this series of messages. Now we come to the question of Jesus Christ. We come to the question of Jesus Christ, and that's chapter 3, verse 30. Verse 30, page 30. So I used to quote in the Bible, and when I refer to a book, I call them verses. But I'm giving you the substance of this. And now we come to the section dealing with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There is one major factor which needs to be considered right at this point as we open the chapter. That is that the new confession seeks to separate Jesus from the Bible. It seeks to separate Jesus from the infallible scripture. But in doing this, it demotes the scriptures and it exalts Jesus Christ. And the emphasis of the new confession, if you want to put any emphasis in any one place, is on this Christ of whom they speak and whom they have separated from the Bible. Now that's it. And what you need to see and what I need to see is that their emphasis upon Christ was, oh my, isn't this marvelous, this tremendous emphasis upon Jesus Christ. What we need to see that the Christ in this new confession has been separated from the Bible. And the Christ of the new confession is a different Christ from the one that's in the Bible. Now that's what you must see. But it's very subtly presented in language as familiar to us as used. And consequently, the ordinary Christian, unless he has someone who's able to get up and draw the line so clearly as we're doing here tonight, they're not able to discern it. It's a very, very shrewd and subtle piece of work that has been done. And yet when you point it out, you can see it very beautifully. You see how clearly... You know, if you throw away the Bible and you don't believe it's infallible and you think it's full of mess and has all these legends and everything else in it, how do you expect to get out of that book any kind of a Christ to begin with? You don't. You can't. Jesus Christ said, had you believed Moses, you'd believe me because he wrote of me. Jesus Christ says, ye do err not knowing the Scriptures. It is they which testify of me. And if you're going to learn of Jesus Christ, the only place you can learn of our Savior is in the infallible Bible. The only place you can learn about. The only place God's revealed him unto us is in the book. And we can't separate Christ from the Bible. It's the Bible that gives us Christ. And after the Bible gives us Christ, we can't turn around and in the name of Christ, throw away the Bible. You just can't do it. The Word of God which is written, and that's the Bible. And the Word of God which is living, 
and that is Jesus Christ, are one and the same. Absolutely one and the same. Jesus Christ said, Oh, fools and slow, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And beginning at Moses and the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And the only reason I'm here tonight to speak like I do concerning Jesus Christ is that I find in all the scriptures these glorious things concerning our Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, now we turn to this new confession, and if you'll open, please, to page 30. I open up in my discussion, and I've pointed out several of these things immediately, which will help you to see how disastrous their treatment of Jesus is. The Christ of this new confession is a sinner. S-I-N-N-E-R. In the plainest of language we are told, he, quote, became a brother to all kinds of sinful men. He became a brother to all kinds of sinful men. Now, beloved, if there's one place where you can really begin to show God's people there's something wrong with this, it's when you get into this thought that Jesus Christ was a brother to sinful men, all kinds of them, he was their brother. Because every Christian that knows anything about the Bible and anything about the Lord Jesus Christ knows that he was without sin. We must recognize that he was without sin. He was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. And he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And the only place and the only point and the only instant when Jesus Christ became sin was when he hung on the cross and the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. There was no sin in him. There was no sin about him. The Lord laid our sin on him and he died for it. And then when he paid the penalty, he arose from the dead and it was all over. The transaction was finished. But when he said, the new confession says that he was a brother to all kinds of sinful men. He was a Palestinian Jew, we're told, who lived among his own people and shared their needs, their temptations, their joys, and their sorrows. And this ties in, of course, directly with what they had said about the Bible over here, expressing the thoughts and the views of the generation in which the various ones wrote. Now, beloved, when you speak about Jesus Christ as being a brother, the Bible does speak about him being a brother, but it says he's an elder brother to you who have become the children of God. Do you mean Jesus Christ was a brother to all kinds of sinful men when he said to the Pharisees, ye are of your father the devil? Was the devil the father of Jesus Christ when Jesus Christ was the brother of these sinful Pharisees? Of course not. Beloved, the Lord Jesus Christ turned and said unto these leaders, How can ye escape the damnation of hell? He called them blind guides. He wasn't a brother to blind guides. He was the light of the world. 
And the first thing that you want to see, and this will open this whole thing up, this will just tear it down, this will simply demolish what they've done to Jesus Christ, is that they have made him a sinner. That's what they did to him. And one sinner can't help another sinner. That's just sure. This sinful Jesus would have to die for his own sin. And you would, I've still got ours on our hands if Jesus Christ was this kind of an individual. Now, the next thing that I want to point out to you, and uh, it's an exceedingly interesting one, and if you'll turn back, I believe, to the confession itself. Let's turn back to this, just the confession, where it has this section on page 181. <clears throat> And it begins like this. In Jesus of Nazareth, true humanity was realized once for all. Now that little word realized is the one that gives the whole case away. In Jesus Christ, true humanity was realized. Well, what, how in the world could it have been realized? What happened? How did it come about? They want to follow this Jesus. They're going to have this nice Christ out here to lead them. He's going to be their great leader in the social changes. It's Christ who's the great leader of the confession they have. But all true humanity, they say, was realized in Jesus Christ. Beloved, up in Boston, when someone got up on the floor and made a motion, that they put the word virgin birth in here and tie this thing down, as it has been confessed in the history of the church, there was a second to that motion and then they couldn't even get anybody to get up and defend it, and they voted down, and they voted the virgin birth out of the new confession. But this idea that humanity was realized in Jesus Christ, well, at what point did this nice form of humanity get in the shape in which uh, they now have it? The whole area here is wide open, and what I want you to see, and this is the key to this confession, over and over again, they'll make statements like this, and somebody like you say, well, isn't that nice that we, the true humanity was realized in this Jesus? But that's the type of statement that satisfies all these modernists. You have an omnibus type of phraseology running through this confession. And you can read it, and you say, well, yes. But the other fellow who believes the exact opposite to you, he reads it. He says yes. And you have a, an omnibus, sort of a canopy here with a type of terminology in which men are miles and miles apart in their belief concerning Jesus Christ. And yet they can take a statement here that true humanity was realized. Well, when was it realized? When he was 33 years of age? When he was 12 years of age? Or when he died on the cross, at what time did this realization take place in this person, Jesus Christ? No, beloved, Jesus Christ was perfect man. He was sinless man from the moment of his incarnation as God gave him birth. He was always that. He was never anything else but perfect, sinless man. And that's what the confession ought to have said, but they don't say it. Now, if you'll turn in this confession back to this section on Jesus Christ that I'm expounding for you tonight, turn to page 33. 
sometimes the best way in the world to show up a difference is to put in comparison. I know you ladies, when you go to buy your clothes, you, uh, I notice that there's a practice. You go into these stores and they got all these lights on. You say, I don't want to look at the dress under that light. Let me take it out in the street. And so here you go to the window and you look at the thing. And here's a blue, and well now let me see another blue. You get a dark blue, and you've got to have some comparisons along here, you know. Uh, and, and you have to see the real black before you can appreciate the gray and the different shades. And that's true when you come to this matter. But notice, I'll put the old confession up here on one side, and listen to it. And then you'll put the new confession on the other side. And the old confession is solid and strong and clean and straight and unafraid. The new confession is silent, generalized, sort of fumbling. Now let's look at this on page 33. Section number two, it reads, The Son of God. The second person of the Trinity, being very and eternal God, of one substance and equal with the Father, did, when the fullness of time was come, take upon him man's nature, with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without what? Sin. Oh, how beautiful that state. Being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost, where? In the womb of the Virgin Mary, of her substance, so that two whole, perfect, and distinct natures, the Godhead and the manhood, were inseparably joined together in one person, without conversion, composition, or confusion which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. Now well, that's what you and I have in our creed, in our church, and that's where we stand. And it couldn't be summarized any more simply or directly or beautifully than it's done at that present time. Fully God, fully man. Do you get anything like that in the New Confession? No, it's just not in there. And they brushed aside all of this because the Christ that they're now going to use and the Christ that they're going to present to the church is an entirely different purpose or person with an entirely different purpose. And that's what the church must see and that's what you must come to see and everybody needs to say it in this day in which we live. All right, now turn back, if you will, please, to page 31. Beloved, if you did read this book I've written, it'll be the greatest indoctrination you ever had. And it'll really straighten you out if you just sit down and take time to do it. It'll establish you in the faith and protect you from error in a magnificent way. One, what one must now recognize is that these matters of the birth, the resurrection, the crucifixion, the ascension, 
the return of Christ are phrases which in the modern theological jargon are symbolic. Many liberals have no objections to them at all. All are a part of the myth of Christianity. To speak of the resurrection of Christ is perfectly proper because it is only a symbolical, allegorical representation. Because of this, the references to Jesus Christ especially can be so misleading as they are capable of many understandings. This is the reason the confession uses these words over and over again, but never gets down to specifics and definition. Why today these liberals speak about the myth of Christianity. It's full of symbols and the resurrection. Yes, let's talk about the resurrection. That's symbolic of the great program that we're advancing, the spirit of life, the spirit of resurrection that we're working on. And the liberals which have come into the church and they've taken over in the church are using the terminology of resurrection. They're using the terminology as it refers to Jesus Christ. Doesn't bother them at all. It's just symbolic. And in the general way in which it's used, since they don't get down to the specifics of the virgin birth, and they don't get down to the specifics such as the blood of the cross, there's no blood in this new confession, they left it out entirely. There's no reference to Jesus Christ coming in the clouds of heaven, it just isn't there. There just isn't any reference in this new confession to heaven, and there isn't any reference in this new confession to hell. They left hell out, they left heaven out. Those words aren't in this book. And what they are trying to do is to get us a Christ who will lead us right here and now in our social changes. When you come to the end of that great resurrection chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul said, If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. We are of all men to be pitied. All right, now let me take you one step further in this book. If you'll turn to this chapter that I'm dealing with on the Lord Jesus Christ. And you come down to the <clears throat> page 36. <clears throat> and page 37. The bottom of page 36, <clears throat> about eight lines from the bottom. Thus we have illustration after illustration of how language is employed to make comfortable a wide variety of opinions and viewpoints, even contradictions, all appealing to the same phraseology with all agreeing that this is satisfactory to them. Certainly such a formula for inclusivism could never be satisfactory to the God of truth. This will kill any church. Beloved, the point I want to make, if this confession is going to speak of Christ, then of all things they ought to define him and to declare him and to manifest in this confession the Christ who is indeed the head of the church. 
Why should we fumble around with our, divi- with our dis- description of Jesus Christ? Why should we hesitate to go all the way as the scriptures go in telling us about Jesus Christ? Beloved, this Christ is the one who saved us from our sins. He's the one whom God raised out of that tomb. He left it empty. He was alive. He was bodily with his companions and they walked with him and they handled him and they saw him and they sat down at the tables and they ate with him. They had table companionship with him and they went with him out onto the top of the hillside and they saw him go. They sang, Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven shall so come again in like manner as ye have seen him go. And behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also that pierced him, and the nations of the earth shall wail because of him. There is no coming of clouds in this new confession. I I pity the people. My heart goes after these people who think that this is the Jesus that they're going to confess in their churches now. Oh, beloved, when my Savior has done everything for me, I want to do everything for Him. And when my Savior died and was raised from the dead that I might have everlasting life, I'm not going to trim Him down. I'm not going to minimize Him. I'm not going to be a party to talking about Him in such a way that the ungodly can come in and shake my hands and say, I agree with you, we're united in our terminology. Well, that's it. They're united in their terminology. But they're not united in the great and glorious work of Jesus Christ, this Redeemer of ours. All right, now we move one step further. Page 37. Uh, Let's begin with the bottom of page 36. Another example may be seen in the statements concerning Jesus Christ in his relationship to the church. Christ is head of this community, the church, that's a direct quotation from the confession, which began with the apostles and continues through all generations. And then I just put in a nice little punch there at the men who deny the Reformed faith, aside from the fact that this is not Presbyterian or Reformed, Doctrine that the church began with the apostles. The real point here is that the head of this community determined the nature of the community. Now, what they have done is to remake Christ and then set him up here at the head of this church. And they speak about Christ being the head of their church, but it's this one they fixed up themselves that they've made the head of the church. And so when they say Christ is the head of the church, we say, well, yes, he's the head of the church. But uh, take a look, which one's up on top of this church? Which one? The one that's in the Bible up there? Is he the one up there or is this the one they fixed up? And they take this terminology, Christ is the head of the church, and we all believe it. And you'll find it in the New Confession. Christ is the head of the church, but which Christ is it? What's the one they fixed up? It's the one they, they patched up. It's the one they created over here and uh, but the one who's the head of the church for you and me is virgin born 
The one who's the head of the church for you and me is sinless. The one who's the head of the church for you and me shed his blood on a cross to satisfy divine justice and to reconcile us to God. And this one being the head of the church, he indeed rules in this church. But this new one over here that they fixed up, this new one that they've worked out here, the one that satisfies them, he's going to be the head of their church too. And from this Christ whom they fixed up, they're going to have a church which they also fixed up too. And that's the way it works. And we've come to days like this. They are tragic days. They are disastrous days. And I'll be very frank to say to you people tonight that they've taken the name of Jesus and they've created a character out here. Here was the genuine one. Here was the real one. Here's the one the church has had for 2,000 years. Here's the one that God gave us. And we can't improve on him and we can't change him. But here he is, the eternal Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that's the Christ under whose ministry we serve tonight. But you come over here with this patched up one, and I like to use this kind of terminology. They patched up a Christ. They fixed one up for themselves. And he's a counterfeit. He's one that they have designed with their own hands so that they can use him to bring to pass the dreams of their own minds. And that's what it is. Oh, beloved, from now on, as this thing goes into effect, and the church moves on, it's going to be social action, social action, social action, political action, political action. They've gotten into the civil rights field. They've gotten into the anti-poverty field. They've gotten into the sex field, the new morality. They've gotten into this reconciliation with the communist world. And you're going to hear more and more and more of that sort of thing, which is tearing the church away from its great historic mornings and its marvelous message of regeneration of the individual and that individual being a child of God and a light in this dark place. That's the difference. What does the new confession do to Jesus Christ? The new confession (coughs) creates a different Christ from the one we've always known. But they use his name. They refer to his resurrection. And a lot of good people like you could read that and say, well, that sounds pretty good to me. Well, that just reveals how much you yourself lack discernment to serve Christ in the day in which you live. That's what it reveals. All right, now if you'll turn to this book, there's a section here in which I point out that they're doing the same thing to the Episcopal Church, and this is what Bishop Pike has been saying, and this is in line with everything he's been saying on page 34. And here's this down toward the bottom of the page. And this problem is not common to Presbyterians today. Anthony Towney, writing in the Christian Century, February the 11th, 1967, or January the 11th, in defense of heresy, discusses the 39 Articles of the Church of England. And since I wrote that, there's been a commission established in England now to revise the 39 articles of the Church of England. 
They're going to do the same thing to the 39 articles of the Church of England that they've done to the Westminster Confession before they get through. This is the trend. Then we move on down. The next paragraph. Then he mounts his scoffings. Do the indignant bishops who accuse Bishop James A. Pike of heresy seriously expect the faithful today to pray to the whatever it is. Article 1 presumes to describe. I have news for those indignant bishops. Few pray to that whatever it is. And then in summary, we read, Having examined the articles of religion with all faithful diligence, I conclude that they are generally vain, frequently pompous, sometimes vacuous, often uncharitable, occasionally incomprehensible, and now and then preposterous, and most of the time authentically hilarious. If such an opinion constitutes heresy, you dear Episcopalian reader are sullying your eyes with the words of a hapless heretic. Set aside this dangerous wickedness and betake yourself to the nearest confessional if you are a high churchman, or fall on the knees, on your knees, if you are low church. I do not know all Satan's lurking places, but I am in no doubt that one of them is the articles of religion. And that's it. That is your attack. That is your uh, assault upon the great revealed religion which we have which God gave to us. And Jesus Christ indeed is the only begotten Son of the living and of the true God. Beloved, is Christ going to be a social reformer from now on? Is he going to join up with Karl Marx? Is that where we're going? Well, that's the line that we're being asked to follow. And you and I who stand where the church has always stood, we're going to stay by this Christ, virgin-born, sinless. He shed his blood on the cross just for you and me. This is not symbolical. This is not some sort of a myth that they call Christianity. This is the truth, the eternal truth, which will save your soul and take you home to be with Jesus Christ. This is it. The day has come now when we're going to call. We'll have to call as never before for people to come out. Come out. I call this book the death of a church. They've killed the church. They've run off with the church and put another one in charge of it. One that they fixed up. One they patched up. This Jesus of theirs. They've made him the head of this church. And they've demoted and dethroned the one that the Westminster Confession of Faith confessed and which the scriptures themselves revealed to you and me. Oh, you can take some of these great words of our Lord Jesus Christ. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. Depart from me, ye workers of iniquity. You call my name. You said you were using my name. But depart from me, you use my name against me.
You used my name against the things that my name stands for. And I'm going to tell you to depart from me, ye workers of iniquity. Now, next Sunday night, the Lord willing, I'm going into this matter of the cross. And I want you to see how close they come. Oh, I want you to hear that message on the cross next Sunday night. How close they come right up to the real thing. But they don't say it. And they won't take it. And they won't come to it. And beloved, that cross means one thing and only one thing to you and me. It means that Jesus Christ bore our sins. He was the sinless one. And when he paid the price for our iniquity, God opened the tomb and raised him from the dead. And he was accepted by God as having made the payment for your transgressions. That's the gospel. And that's the only gospel there is. And there is none other. Oh, you Presbyterians tonight, God bless you. Come out and be separate. And if you stay in a dead church, you'll be dead too. And if you stay in this kind of a church, your soul's not going to be fed. And you're going to have to go out and be with the little groups, the despised groups, the persecuted groups, the haunted groups, the afflicted groups. You're going to have to go out and stand with them. And Jesus said, don't you be afraid, little flock. It's my Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And when we believe in this Christ and we put our trust in the Son of the living God, he will enable us to arise and bear testimony to him and he'll give us the grace that we need to understand our day. What interests me about all this is they want to confess Christ in the present. And so they come up with this Christ that they fixed up for themselves. Beloved, I confess the Christ of eternity. And the Christ of eternity is the only one who can help the present. He's the only one that can be of any assistance to the present. And this is the Christ in whom you and I delight. And as a church, we confess him. Oh, thank God you Bible Presbyterians that have been here these years, you don't realize what important deeds we did when we stepped aside. We don't realize what it's mean in the overall sweep of human history and the movement of the Christian church, but here it is. And this little book of mine opens up these subjects one after another, and tonight I pray that you will see that only the Christ of the Bible, I don't separate my Jesus from the Bible, I get everything I know about Christ out of the Bible. And that's the kind of a Savior that you and I have tonight. And that's the Savior whom we worship, our Lord Jesus Christ. And, oh, beloved, I invite you to come to him. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. I invite you to put your trust in him. He'll never forsake you nor leave you. I invite you just to believe all that he's given us and let his word cleanse your soul and strengthen your heart. I invite you to come to Jesus and then say, as the Apostle Paul said, to me to live is Christ. Thou, Christ, art all I want. More than all in thee I find. Here he is, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Here he is, the Godhead, bodily, in human flesh, fully God, perfect man, 
the creator of all things, the redeemer of his elect, those who are to be gathered together with him. And beloved, if you don't believe in the virgin birth, then you don't believe in the resurrection. And you don't believe in the virgin birth, you don't believe in the rapture. And you don't believe in the virgin birth, you don't believe in the coming of Christ with his elect from all the ends of the heavens when that great company shall be gathered together in that day when the church is brought into the visible presence of her true and her living Lord. This is our Christ. Let's die for him. Let's live for him. Let's build a church in his name. Let's be members of a church that's making a difference today. Now let us pray.